Is it ever going to be enough? More and more and more. More money. More sex. More power. More knowledge. More fame. More leisure. More family time. What is it that is your pursuit today? The more and more and more. So today we kick off this series for the fall entitled simply Money, Sex, and Power. Sacred gifts or toxic idols. Sacred gifts or toxic idols. And simply put today, I've entitled it Having It All. Because we want to have it all, right? And we juggle our schedules and we plan our time during the course of a week and even get the calendar out so we can have more and more and more. There's a hunger for us to have it all. But what is it that we want that is the all? It's interesting as uh, I have spent time looking into this that there is a lot to be said concerning this subject matter. And at first I thought, let's just do three weeks. One week on money, one week on sex, and one week on power. But as I've wrestled with it and engaged and interacted and even talked to people, even some of you, there's, there's more here than three weeks. And there's more here than just the isolation of each of the subject matters. Richard Foster says this, no issue, no issues touch us more profoundly or more universally. No themes are more inseparably intertwined. No topics caused more controversy. No human realities have greater power to bless or to curse. No three things have been sought after or more in need of a Christian response than money, sex, and power. And here's the reality with money, sex, and power. It's not that they're standalone talks into themselves or standalone realities into themselves. They sort of intertwine and interbreed with one another because we need an understanding of how that hunger for more and more and more of having it all impacts us. And so they intertwine and intermix one with another. And it's not just these three. It may be the knowledge. It may be the fame. It may be the leisure. It may be the family. Different kinds of things can emerge. And all of them, you need to understand this, all of them are good. You see, normally on a talk like this, and I understand it's sort of a hot hot topic, a hot series. Maybe you're watching online today or you've come and you're new because, yeah, somebody said you're going to talk on this. Let's see the pastor get out in the weeds on talking about sex, huh? So it's like, you know, what's, where's this going? What's going to be happening with it? Most people probably thought when you see the, the three lay down of money, sex, and power that, that there's going to be a lot of hammering and coming down on us because they're bad, bad, bad bad. Well, you need to understand this. They're not bad, 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 bad. In fact, you know, as I was uh, thinking through the whole aspect of having it all, 
uh, these three uh, subject matters, uh, and we did a posting on Facebook and, and uh, some other social media kind of thing. And I always cringe a little bit where I'm like, oh, what kind of response is we going to get with that? There was one person that kept reposting something, and I'm like, why are they doing this? What? And it was just simply, no, no. I'm like, what are they saying? Or is it some code I don't know, N-O period, that kind of thing? I finally just said, you know, let's just dismiss those comments. A little overwhelming. But it made me think about this reality. You put something out there and you say, hey, we're going to talk about money, sex, and power. It's like, no, no, no. But that's why the subline of all this, and we're going to be unpacking it over these weeks, it begins with sacred gifts. They're good things. The sacred gifts that God has given us. But these sacred gifts, if they're not kept in the appropriate place in God's uh, uh, desire for us, turn into toxic idols. And those toxins can breed their way through your life, your kids, your families. And not just in one moment in time, it can cause toxins to be spilled for generations to come. And so this subject matter is quite important. This whole understanding of having it all, not just in these three areas, but in others. And then, as Richard Foster mentioned here, that these three des- deserve, they need, they need a Christian response. And so we're going to look at Scripture. We're going to look at Scripture and how God unpacks these three areas and others and how it impacts people, people of the scripture. And so today is a bit of a, an overview, or I really should say it's more just sort of an entry-level kind of thing concerning money, sex, and power. And I want you to invite your friends, and, and if you saw on the way in, I mean, we, we got cards for you to hand out to people, encourage other people, because there's a lot of brokenness in these places. So with that, I'm going to invite you to take your scriptures And we are going to turn to a passage of Jesus where he was interfacing with some people of his day. It says this in Matthew 12, verse 38. One day, some teachers of religious law and Pharisees came to Jesus and said, Teacher, we want you to show us a miraculous sign to prove your authority. Now, I don't know what you do when you go to Scripture, but I really try to place myself there. I put myself in the context of the day and the age in which it was, even the dress codes, right, and how they operated, and some of the political power plays that were going on. And Jesus had those to deal with as he talked and interacted with these religious elite people of his day. And they were always trying to catch Jesus by doing something or saying something that wasn't quite right, right? Same same thing happens today in our political world, right? But here's the teachers of the religious law, the Pharisees, the cream of the crop, the top dogs, the elite, come to Jesus and they say, hey, show us a miracle. (laughs) Come on, man, prove your authority again. We've heard about you kind of idea. And what does Jesus do? Oh, my goodness. He always just cuts to the heart so quick. But Jesus replied, Only an evil, adulterous generation would demand a miraculous sign. But the only sign I will give them is the sign of the prophet Jonah. 
How many of you know the story of Jonah? Can I see your hands? Some of you maybe not. Hopefully the kids are learning it through things. Jonah is a story, if you've been in church circles, that maybe you sort of know. Maybe if you haven't been, here's what the deal is. Jonah was a prophet. God told him to go to a city of a, a few hundred thousand called Nineveh that was really bad. And Jonah said, no. He resisted God. He was on a ship. Shipwrecks. He gets swallowed by a whale or a large fish for three days he's in this fish and the fish pukes him up on the shore of what city Nineveh and he says all right I got it and he goes to Nineveh and he preaches after he'd resisted God now you know Christianity takes a lot of hard knocks and sometimes rightly so but one of the knocks is like, there's just some incredible stories in Scripture. Like that story about the big fish. Come on. Swallowed by a whale three days. Well, he referenced it, uh, I think it was a couple months ago or sometime this summer. Someone actually did get swallowed by the whale. And they were in there for a while and they got puked up. That kind of thing. But is it not interesting that here Jesus himself references the prophet Jonah and the story of Jonah. And he doesn't go, well, it was just a big fish story. And it wasn't really true, it, sort of legend kind of thing, you know. But let me use it a little bit. No. He just, boom, it's right there. That which was out of the Old Testament, he's using. And he says, there's only sign I will give them as the sign of the prophet Jonah. And what was that sign? Well, he goes on and says, For as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be in the heart of of the earth for three days and three nights. Hey, we're looking for a sign, Jesus. Come on, show us a sign. He says, I'm only going to show you the sign of Jonah. As Jonah was in the belly of the well, so I will be in the ground for three days dead, and I'm going to come back to life. He's actually foreshadowing his death and resurrection right here in front of these religious elite. Now he says the people of Nineveh will stand up against this generation on judgment day and condemn it. For they repented of their sins at the preaching of Jonah. Now someone greater than Jonah is here, but you refuse to repent. You know, in light of what remembrance we have, some with 9-11 this weekend, uh, we think of the journey, those of us who have been around a few years, right? The journey of America and our heart grieves sometimes when we see what happens in our nation and in the cities of our nation. But isn't it interesting that here was a very hideous city named Nineveh that repented and turned on the prophet Jonah's preaching. Friends, we are not outside a revival in any city, in any part of this nation or the world. God is at work, and as surely as he put Jonah in the belly of a well to send a preacher to them, and he prepared those people, and they repented. God's at work, and my prayer is that America, today, with all that we're going through, would repent and would return to God in ways that we have never seen before. And that's not just, um, you know, pie-in-the-sky kind of thinking. It can happen. Let's pray, and may we pray for our nation and pray for the people of our nation that they would return to God. As I mentioned, uh, when we prayed a little bit prior there to today's talk, when 9-11 happened and the people gathered at our church and we prayed around this big grand piano and we just sang hymns together, 
We needed that comfort and that strength that God was still present and God was still at work. And friends, the churches, I'll give evidence, the churches were filled for many weeks after that until people did what? They started to forget. And they started to rely upon their own power and their own strength. But here he tells the story of Nineveh. And it's a story for us to know that we need to make sure that we're in a place of repentance. But it's a story of hope for us because of what happened with Nineveh through the prophet Jonah and God's work. Let's continue to pray for our nation in this time during these days, especially when there's heightened uh, awareness of what's going on, not only here, but globally. And then he said this. He gave another example to the religious elite. The queen of Sheba will also stand up against the, this generation on Judgment Day and condemn it. For she came from a distant land to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Now someone greater than Solomon is here, but you refuse to listen. The queen of Sheba was a queen from the south, possibly Yemen, some part of Africa, had heard about Solomon, came to the north. He gives this as another example. And he said, Nineveh listened and they repented. And this queen, they came and uh, they listened to Solomon, the wisdom of Solomon. But you, my friends, you refuse to repent. You refuse to listen. And they said, I don't know what they said. They probably hung their head. They said, we don't like this man's talk. Now, what I want to grab here, as it relates to the series on money, sex, and power, is to grab a hold of Solomon. I don't know if you're familiar with who King Solomon was. Israel king. Saul. David. Solomon grand glory of Israel's time, the golden ages, they said. Solomon, front and center. Jesus is standing before them and says, one greater than Solomon. <gasps> we revere Solomon. He had it all. He had it all. He had all riches, money. He had all pleasure, sex. He had all power. One greater than him is standing in your midst? Get out. And they probably hung their heads and they walked away. So I'd like us to look just briefly at Solomon's life and what he learned because his journey as a human being, even though he was great in all these areas of having it all, is no different than the journey you're on as you're seeking to find peace and fulfillment. Find that which you need to make an all, a hunger filled in your life. And so in the book of Ecclesiastics, he writes quite descriptively and quite overwhelmingly, he writes concerning all of the life experiences that he pursued and he was a part of. And he leads off the book of Ecclesiastics with these words. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher himself. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What? This is the great Solomon. He's writing a great book. And that's how he starts out. Well, what is vanities? It's translated different ways in different translations. But vanity is meaninglessness. 
It's meaninglessness, it's absolute futility, it's useless, it's a bubble that burst. And he had it all. He had it all, and he says, it's all vanity. Really? It's all vanity? Yeah. It's all vanity. It says in verse 12, the teacher was king over Israel and Jerusalem. He said, I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. The first thing that he explored and he tried to gain more of, he had a hunger more for, was knowledge, was wisdom. And he kept looking for that. And he said in verse 16, I said to myself, look, I have increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I have experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. In fact, it says in 1 Kings 4, it references that he was wiser than anyone in all the East, wiser than anyone in Egypt. And then it lists several names. He was wiser than all these people. The reason that the queen of Sheba, the the queen from the south, came because she wanted to check him out related to what she'd heard concerning not just his wealth and his prosperity and his power, but his knowledge and his wisdom. And said, "I, I need to learn, is this true of him? And she sat down and she quizzed him for the longest period of time, it's believed, and it wasn't about riddles. It was about life. And when she got done with her stay in Solomon's Uh, palace, it was like, he's the real deal, man. He has wisdom and discernment. He's perceptive. The wisdom of Solomon, scriptures teach, maybe you've heard that, that there was one who was greater than Solomon. His name was Jesus. And Jesus knew the plight of human beings because the word became flesh and dwelt among us. God himself came flesh And he walked and he was tempted in all such ways as us. He understood this world and he speaks to those Pharisees and those religious elite. And he says, you are not like them of Nineveh. You did not repent. And you are not like the Queen of Sheba. She listened. But one now greater than them, than him, is here. In 2 Corinthians 4, 4, it says, Satan, and there is a devil, Whether you believe it or not, there is a devil, there are demons, and they're at work. And they're at work doing exactly what this verse says. Who is the God of this world, Satan and his workers, who has blinded the minds of those who don't believe? They are unable to see the glorious light of the good news. They don't understand this message about the glory of Christ, who is the exact likeness of God. Satan's at work to blind the eyes. And apparently Solomon, in his frustration and crying out, vanity, all is vanity, he started to realize the scales fall off. It's all meaningless if you pursue it as an ends in itself. Though very well good in some things, but when you establish them as your primary pursuit, vanity of vanities, all is meaningless. Bursting of the bubble. I mean, he had it all. Do you know how rich he was? He had billion, he was given billions of dollars of gold. He had all kinds. He had 40,000 horses. He had beautiful pools. You talk about a swimming pool. His had a swimming pool with, with 12 lions, statued lions that were uh, covered with blazing, glaring bronze. He had it all. And Solomon, he looked at it, 
beginning with wisdom, and he says, I don't know. I don't know. It all seems like vanity to me. And he was starting to have his mind opened because it had been blinded. As Ephesians 4.18 says, they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. But in Christ, we have all knowledge. Christ was the wisest of anyone who has ever walked on this earth. Wiser than Solomon. He is smart. He is intelligent. And when you have Christ in your life, guess what? You gain the wisdom and the knowledge of God. He begins to illuminate and open your eyes. They're no longer darkened, separated, or there's ignorance. Young people, I tell you what, some of you maybe are in college. Maybe some of you headed to college. By the way, I'm glad that the high school gang's in here. I know the middle school's connecting out in what they're doing, but this whole series on money, sex, and power is going to be right down the alley of the world that you live in and the temptations and the challenges and what God wants to speak to you about. So I'm glad you're here. But if you're a student and you hear a professor that doesn't have the wisdom and the knowledge of Christ living within them, guess what? You are smarter than your professor. You're smarter than the person who has that PhD because Christ has all knowledge and wisdom and he's able to come and impart that to you and I. But here's Solomon and he's struggling and he's wrestling and he's saying, I have all this wisdom, but what good is it? And it wasn't just the wisdom and the knowledge. It wasn't just the wealth and the power and the, and the money. He had all the pleasure. I said in my heart in chapter 2, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself, but behold, this also was vanity. This also was vanity. But that which has proved to be meaningless, laughter, I said, is madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the days of their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I brought male and female servants and, and had others who were born into my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold and myself with myself and the treasure of the kings and the provinces i acquired male and female singers and and i had a harem as well the delights of a man's heart i became greater by far than anyone in jerusalem before me he had everything he fell all the wealth all the sex you know that he had 700 wives and 300 concubines Friends, he had all the sex. He had more sex than you'll ever have in your life. He had it. And Solomon indulged himself with the pleasures. He had concerts of people come in. He put on big concerts. He had all kinds of people singing. He had all kinds of parties. He says this in verse 10 of chapter 2, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. Yet when I surveyed that all my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaninglessness, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Somewhere 
somewhere in the midst of having it all. Solomon went up probably maybe on the rooftop of his palace and he sat down underneath the stars. And he just says, is this it? Is this all that there is? Because it's not filling something that was in his heart. It's not filling something that was in his heart. And it wasn't just money, sex, and power. He, he tried religion too. He built one of the greatest temples that could ever be imagined and overlaid it with gold. The streets, the, the floors were lined with gold. He kept getting gold from all these people like the Queen of Sheba who came to visit him and others. And it just had all, and he pauses and he reflects on all this. And he comes to this conclusion at the end of the book. After declaring vanity, all is vanities. He says, now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the duty of all mankind. Fear God. Have a reverence for God. Worship God. Understand God's existence and his desire to be in relationship with you. Fear God and be in obedience to him. Not because he said so, but because you love him. And you walk in that obedience and the commandments for all of mankind. And then he adds this, for God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or whether it is evil. You know, some of the wisdom, the knowledge that Solomon gained goes back to something that was gained by human beings that they should have never had in the Garden of Eden. You know what happened in the Garden of Eden? Well, in the Garden of Eden, before the sin and the fall, there was an innocence. And then when sin came, they gained knowledge. They gained knowledge of what? Evil. God never intended for us to have the knowledge of evil. His plans and preparations for the future of the new heaven and the new earth and the full redemption of his kingdom of God, there will be no evil. We see evil all around us. When those planes flew into the towers, that's evil. What else do you want to define as evil? Somebody who stabbed you in the back, somebody who's wronged you in a relationship, someone who spouted some lies about you and you carry that with you. There is evil around us, and that comes from the fall and the knowledge of it. And there's the trappings of trying to work our way through what is good and evil. But God says there's a judgment day coming. There is a judgment day coming when he will separate it, that which is good and that which is evil. But those who love and longed for him and followed his commandments and received Christ into their life, he will say, welcome in to that good and perfect place. Vanity, all is vanity. Having it all. Having it all. Romans 12, 1, verse 22 and 23, and we're going to dive into this text more in the weeks to come. This particular verse says this, claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools in the world. And instead of worshiping the glorious, ever-living God, they worshipped idols. Now, they worshipped idols of stone and stature in that day, but friends, there are idols today that we worship. Money, sex, and power are great gifts. 
And we'll unpack that in the weeks to come, each of those. But if those things get turned and they become the idols by which you pursue in life, you are going to find a deep hunger, longing, and it doesn't matter how much you get, what you experience, all the accolades you have, how many kids you have, whatever, there will be a hunger in your heart because your heart was designed to be in relationship with the God of the universe through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And if we take the worship of God and replace it with something else, we will be the most miserable people. But yet our whole life, that's sort of what we end up trending to do. Simply put, and I position it before you for not only today, but the weeks to come. We either worship God in this life, or we replace the worship of God with something else. You fill in the blank. And you go, Carrie, you're being pretty hard on us today in that regards. I'm not hard on you, I'm hard on me. If the Spirit wants to be hard on you, then let his spirit speak. But what are you pursuing, spending your time, your resources, your energies towards today? Are they idols that are toxic? Or are you pursuing God and then stewarding well the sacred gifts that he gives to you and to me? Let's go back to that passage with Jesus. <laughs> Now someone greater than Jonah is here, but you refuse to repent. Now someone greater than Solomon and all of his wisdom and his power and his glory and his pleasure is here. But you refuse to listen to what he said. And they were very mindful of the book of Ecclesiastics, all chasing, chasing after chaffings in the wind. The one greater... The one greater is Jesus Christ. And God intends for you to be in a dynamic relationship with him. Jesus himself said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What about knowledge? Colossians 2 says, In order that we may know the mysteries of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Riches. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, that though we, he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. How about power? Matthew 12, 8, 28, 18, all power, all authority has been given unto me in heaven on earth. And as it says in Romans 1, 16 with the apostle Paul, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation to everyone who believes. And pleasure Hebrews 12, 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. Friends, you and I have all that we need in Christ. You may doubt that, but my question is, have you ever tried that? Have you ever sought to have the full experience of Christ living in your life. There was a famous novelist in America. Maybe some of you have heard of him by the name of David Foster Wallace. He actually wrote an article or gave a speech, really. It was a speech at a college that he gave in 2005. 
He was a very strong novelist. People admired him a lot, and a lot of times they said it's just really hard to understand what he's saying. They thought maybe he was so deep, whatever. But at this particular commencement address that he gave in 2005 at Kenyon College, he entitled it, There Really Are No Atheists. And he says this, In the day-to-day trenches of adult life. Now this quote, you need to understand, he's speaking this as a non-believer. He's not a Christian. And he's speaking it to a bunch of educated people upon their graduation, right? And not just the students, but also the professors. He says, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it Jesus Christ or Allah or Yahweh or the Wiccan Mother Goddess or the Four Noble Truths or some involuntable set of ethical principles, is pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive than those. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified in myths, proverbs, cliches, epigrams, parables, the skeleton of every great story. The whole trick is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness. Worship power, and you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect. Being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful. It's that they're unconscious. They are the default settings. If you don't worship God, you will worship something else. If you don't worship God, you will turn to those things even though you're not conscious that they're gods to you and they'll eat you alive. And you will spend your whole life trying to figure that out. And some of the passion that I've got as I've wrestled with this and said, Lord, is this really where we go? It's because, friends, we live in a world, you live in a world, you are actively participating maybe in it right now, going the wrong direction. You see, we come here on a Sunday morning, and sometimes we put our mask on, and I'm not just talking about a COVID mask. We put a mask on to look our best, but inside we are dying a thousand deaths. Because that which we're pursuing is eating us alive. More and more. More money. More sex. More pleasure. More power. More whatever it may be. It eats you alive if that is your idol and your goal. You were made by God in the image of God and to turn to Him. And to worship Him. You know, I went to get the Rooted books the other day over in Orange County. 
rooted, uh, came out of Mariner's Church, a large church over there. And so when we order books, I go to a warehouse they have. And I went over there and got the books. And I'm coming back. And as I'm getting on the, the beautiful 91 freeway with it all packed with traffic, right? My little light on the dashboard goes ding, ding, ding. And I'm in my wife's car, and I'm not too familiar with how far you can go, but it's a smaller car. And I think, I'm in trouble. Should I get in the fast track lane or should I not? I better not. I better stay here because I might run out of gas by the time I get all the way around on the 91 coming down the 15. Some of you travel that. You know what I mean. And so I got there, and I was still impatient with that. And I'm thinking, I think maybe I had a gallon, how many gallons, miles a gallon, these type of things. And going. And so I'm, I'm just going to get off here. I'm going to cut Caddy Corner across Corona to go to Sam's Club because I know it's always cheaper at Sam's Club and Costco, right? And sure enough, it was 60 cents cheaper when I just got there. But when I got off Corona, for whatever reason, Corona is very confusing to me. Ontario... Uh, What's that M word they have there? The uh, Magdalene? No, it's... Uh, uh, what is it? Magnolia, yeah, Magnolia. I, I'm turning all which kinds of directions wrong to cut across there. I had to... I had my Google Maps out. And I had to do something that is so embarrassing for me. My wife says, I do it all the time. It's a great idea. I had to hit the audio version of Google Maps to tell me which direction to turn right or left. Now, someone who prides himself in the sense of direction, that's not very good. It's like, I, I don't want you to tell me, another half a mile, you can turn right, turn left on this road. I'm like, I got this. I've got a sense of, but I was sort of lost cutting through there, that kind of thing. And I thought to myself when I finally pulled up to the pump at Sam's Club, I wasted a lot of emotional energy, a lot of worry, and a lot of concern trying to get my way here. I sort of knew where it was, but I was lost. Because that's the way people are in life. We spend every year of our life. Thankfully, Louise, as we celebrated her this morning, early on in her life, you chose to worship God, right? Eight years old as a child. But friends, we spend our lives pursuing all kinds of wrong directions here and there. And you got friends, you got family, you got relatives that they're pursuing money, sex, power, knowledge, fame, leisure, whatever it may be. And you just want to say, would you turn on the Google Voice map that says, this is the way. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so, friends, that's our hope today. If you're dying on the inside, if you're pursuing some of the toxins of these idols, some of these unconscious things that seem to be just eating at you and causing you to have fights with your spouse or with your kids or with your boss, let's realign things. Who, who, or what are you worshiping? Fix your eyes upon Jesus. Jesus said in John 10.10, 10, The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. That Hebrews passage I read just there briefly, referencing fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. When I came back across that passage this week, I was reminded of my mother. It was two years ago this month that my mom, 
was in her challenging last few weeks of life. We did not know it then. Gratefully, I was able to be back in the Midwest and in Indiana with her, and I was able to spend some time not only with her, but all my other four siblings and nieces and nephews. She had been in a rehab center. She had fallen, and we thought, well, you're going to get rehabbed, and she'd been there for a couple months and just get stronger and get back out. She was in her 80s, and water started to develop on her lungs, so you had to go to the hospital for that and some other things, and before we knew it, we're in a situation in a hospital room after a few days, and all me and my siblings were there, and they had the hospice person come in. Well, when the hospice person comes in, that's not necessarily a good sign. I know some people go into hospice, get down to hospice, and very helpful, that kind of thing. But the hospice reality is this could be the end. And we sat and we shared there heart to heart in so many different kinds of ways. And as my mom was reflecting on this possibly in the last part of her life, she said, you know, I, I want to stay. I don't want to go. But I'm willing if this is what Jesus wants. She says, I wanted to see more weddings. I wanted to see more babies. But if this is what Jesus wants, then I'm so excited because I get to go see my Jesus. I'm going to invite Jamie and Melissa to come out. There's, there's something so endearing when I reflect on those two years ago with my mother. She lived her life in close proximity to God. She would read her Bible. She would pray for us. She played the piano for so many years at her churches. She passed away after we got her home in her bedroom. I was in charge in the last few moments that she passed. I was sitting there, conscious that at 7 o'clock p.m. I needed to give her a, a dose of morphine, and Melissa had been in charge of giving that prior to me, and she hadn't slept for way too many hours. And So I said, I got this. I can do this. So I was waiting at 7 p.m. I was in the lazy boy beside the hospital bed in her bedroom, all by myself. The rest of the family was out in the big family kitchen area that she served us so faithfully in, having a great meal that somebody brought. The actual hospice person brought it. And there was laughing. I'm sorry. In my mind, were her words, I get to go see my Jesus, and she hadn't spoken for two days, a day and a half, you know, how it gets down towards the end. But she was laying there, and there had not been any movement. But a couple minutes, or more, right before seven, I looked over at her, and she'd sort of gone silent. But then I saw her facial expression which hadn't moved. And all of a sudden, it was the, the lifting of the eyebrows. And 
and I don't know much about death and maybe that was all part of it, but you know what I felt was true of that moment? She got to see Jesus. And all of life was redefined in those few seconds on the other side of eternity. Sacred gifts that God had given her. But they were not to be idols. She was to follow Jesus. And she did. And she passed that on to us. And I chose to follow Jesus at the age of eight. And whether it was at the age of eight or maybe you're here this morning and there's dying inside of you, you can look to Jesus and you can find salvation. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He came that you may have life and have it all, have it to the full, but have you surrendered your life to Jesus? And I would be amiss if we didn't start out this series by giving you the opportunity to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior this morning. And so I'm going to ask Melissa to sing a song that is a dear hymn, phrasing of a song. I'm going to ask you to listen. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes and reflect. What are you pursuing? Are you pursuing the worship of God? Or are you pursuing the worship of something else and replacing God? Are you pursuing Jesus, the one who is greater than Solomon? Have you repented? Have you listened? Have you turned your eyes upon Jesus? You answer that question if you've done that in your life. And when she closes singing, we're going to have a prayer for you to be able to receive Jesus as your Savior, as your Lord and Master the one who is not here to ruin your joy or take away the fun, but to give you the life to the fullest. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the thing Lord 
heads bowed and your eyes closed, I'm just going to ask across this room today, even if you're watching online, if you've never turned your eyes to Jesus, turned your life to him, repented of your sins and said, Jesus, come into my life. I want to worship you and serve you all the days of my life. And you would like to do that this morning. I'm going to just invite you to raise your hand and say, it's me standing in the need of prayer. I want to commit my life to be a follower of Jesus Christ today. Maybe it's because of something that's been dying inside of you or the wrong pursuits. You would just simply say, it's me. Pray for me. I want to receive Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Anyone today? In the quietness of your heart, even if you're watching from home, it's a simple prayer because it has not to do with words. It has to do with the disposition of the heart. Pray with me. Our Lord Jesus, listen to the hearts of your people here today. And whether it's wanting to come to you for the first time or maybe return to you because the pursuits in life have led them down paths, dark, dead-end alleys, and they want to return to you. Lord, hear the prayers of your people. Just repeat in your heart after me, Dear Lord Jesus Christ, I thank you for being one who is greater than Solomon, one who has all wisdom, all knowledge, all riches, all joy, all power. And I repent of my sin, of going the wrong direction, and I now turn afresh and anew or for the first time to follow you, Jesus. Come into my life. Be my Savior. Be my leader. Be my Lord. And from this day forward, as you enable me, I will serve you the rest of my life. Until that day, when I turn my eyes heavenward, and I shed this earthly body, and I see you face to face into your eternal world, and gain an immortal body to live where there is no evil and no fear. Lord, I long for that day, but for this day, I too want to live in your presence. Thank you, Jesus. Amen and amen. Well, thank you this morning. I want to encourage you to bring with you a friend. I'm going to ask the ushers if they'd take their places to receive the Lord's tithes and offerings as 
well as your Connect card if you filled out one of those or if you have tithes and offerings to give, you can give those today or give them through the app that's represented there. But I don't know what God has in store for these weeks. I love fall kickoff, and I'm not talking about the NFL basically kicking off today and some of you wanting to get to your games, I understand that, or maybe you've been watching them already on the phone. I never know when I'm up here. But this is serious time for us to do the Lord's business in our own hearts and in reaching our friends. For a few weeks, we had you fill out your Connect card and list three names of people that are in this valley that need a relationship with Jesus. And we didn't have the cards last week, but we have them this week. On your way out, I need to see you all stop. At the white tables, at the welcome desk, wherever, I need you to get three of these cards. And whether you mail it to the person or you hand deliver it, it makes a world of difference when it's a personal invite. Say, we're in this really hot series, and I don't know where the pastor's all going with it. But will you come with me to church next week? Bring your kids too. Good kids places, middle schools now meeting uh, during the message part. But take three. And if you got more than three friends, and a few of you do, grab more. There's also a way to send the invite um, through online. And the second thing is I want you to Consider being a part of Rooted, especially if you've not taken that step and your seat backs is a Rooted registration thing. Just fill that out and give it to me. But Tuesday, we've had 60 people sign up for Rooted, which I'm pretty excited about. This will be three groups. But we're all meeting together on Tuesday. If you've thought about doing it, just show up Tuesday. You don't have to commit. You can walk out after Tuesday and go, that's not for me. But come as we kick things off Tuesday night at 630 and maybe one of these people you're reaching needs to come to Rooted as well. So thank you. Make sure you pick up several of these on your way out. Will you stand with me? Now unto him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. And may his spirit descend upon you afresh and anew as you go fully alive in Christ and to his mission this week for his glory. God bless.